You might think you're in control of unwanted emotions when you ignore them, but in fact, they control you. The internal pain always comes out. It always does. And who pays the price? We do. Our children, our colleagues, our communities. So feel the fear. Don't suppress it. Just like with any other emotion, we can't keep suppressing our emotions. And don't let it stop you from doing the brave and courageous thing that you are being called to do. Hello, and welcome to the Emotional Expedition Podcast. I'm Meg Thomas, and if you want to live a more open-hearted, magical life, it all starts with your emotions. This podcast will take you on a journey, helping you to better understand, express, release, and heal your emotions. Let's get exploring. I've been going through a lot of really big emotions in my personal life, and I think it's only fitting to talk about how I care for myself during emotional times. My first rule is I only publicly share what I've already had some healing around, which means that I'm not ready to publicly share these stories yet. I support and protect myself by being very conscious of who I go to for emotional support and who I communicate with in these tender moments versus putting it all out there for the world to weigh in on. I very much consider myself an open book And I have a deep desire to share emotional stories with the world so we can normalize talking about our emotions. But I'm also deeply protective of the space I take to do my own healing first. So the first rule is to be conscious of who you're sharing with. Not everyone can hold space for your raw and vulnerable emotions. And that's okay. We don't need everyone to. We just need two or three people in our lives who can. The next part that has become really apparent to me is the need to physically move my body. So I'm making sure that I'm out in nature every day and I'm walking, sometimes walking very fast just to move some of the emotions through my body. Another thing I've done is gone back to therapy. I haven't been in therapy in a while because I haven't needed it. But I now know how to recognize when I need some extra support. So I reached out to my therapist. That's one way I can create an extra container of support at this time. When I need therapy, I get myself back there without any shame or judgment, just like if you were to sprain an ankle and you start going to physical therapy. Unfortunately, in our culture, we're still very far away from viewing the importance of mental health in comparison to physical health. Speaking out loud helps me to process what I'm feeling. And writing. Writing also helps me process what it is I'm feeling. Somehow putting it on the paper and getting it out of my head helps me to make sense of it in a way that I can't when it's all just playing on an endless loop in my mind. I also tend to put an even greater emphasis on my spiritual needs at this time. And this can take on all sorts of different practices. Some of the things I'm doing this time around are working with a healer I love and trust, practicing breath work, playing the singing bowls, reading, using essential oils, and meditating. And the last piece of how I'm supporting myself comes from this work. The work that we're doing and why this podcast even matters 
is being able to properly identify and label our emotions. There's something really healing that comes from being able to identify what it is we're feeling, which allows us to articulate it in a way that is in a much deeper alignment than saying, I'm sad, when what it is is I'm feeling disappointment. This work matters. We have to feel it to heal it. So whatever you may be going through in your life right now, Allow yourself the space to really feel your feelings and take what works for you. Leave the rest. I don't do all of these practices every single day of the week. I just have a lot of tools in my toolbox and I use them when I need them. And be extra loving to yourself during the harder times. Now let's get into this week's episode, which is all about fear. I want to start with my absolute favorite, favorite quote on fear. I text it, I share it, I email this quote more than any other quote. It comes from Elizabeth Gilbert from her book, Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear. And it's not even really a quote. It's more of a letter to fear. Dearest fear, creativity and I are about to go on to a road trip together. I understand you'll be joining us because you always do. I acknowledge that you believe you have an important job to do in my life and that you take your job seriously. Apparently, your job is to induce complete panic whenever I'm about to do anything interesting. And may I say, you are superb at your job. So by all means, keep doing your job if you feel you must. But I will also be doing my job on this road trip, which is to work hard and stay focused. And creativity will be doing its job, which is to remain stimulating and inspiring. There's plenty of room in this vehicle for all of us, so make yourself at home. But understand this, creativity and I are the only ones who will be making any decisions along the way. And I recognize and respect that you are a part of this family. So I'm never going to exclude you from our activities. But still, your suggestions will never be followed. You're allowed to have a seat and you're allowed to have a voice, but you're not allowed to have a vote. You're not allowed to touch the roadmaps. You're not allowed to suggest detours. You're not allowed to fiddle with the temperature. Dude, you're not even allowed to touch the radio. But above all else, my dear and old familiar friend, you are absolutely forbidden to drive. This letter to fear is my mantra for life. Every single big and beautifully scary thing I do is not in the absence of fear. It's with fear in the back seat. I let my fear be a compass for me. If I'm doing something for the first time, like launching a podcast, when I feel the fear with me, it's a compass letting me know that I'm on the right track and I'm expanding and growing. I reread the entire Big Magic book as I was building and starting this podcast, to remind myself to keep fear in the back seat. Liz says, if you can't learn to travel comfortably alongside your fear, then you'll never be able to go anywhere interesting or do anything interesting. And I believe her. She also says, don't go wasting your time trying to kill off your fear. Don't go to war with it. Just create space for it. There is a direct relationship between creativity and fear. Fear is always triggered by creativity because creativity asks you to enter into the realms of uncertain outcome, and fear hates uncertain outcome. This is nothing to be ashamed of. It is, however, 
something to be dealt with. All right, let's check in and see what Brene Brown has to say about fear from her latest book, Atlas of the Heart. She says that for anxiety and dread, the threat is in the future. And this is different from fear because with fear, the threat is now. It's in the present moment. Her definition is, fear is a negative, short-lasting, high-alert emotion in response to a perceived threat. And like anxiety, it can be measured as a state or a trait. So what this means is you could be experiencing a moment that triggers the fear in you. That would be considered a state. Or it could be a trait, meaning you could be a more fearful person. Fear arises in us when we need to respond quickly to physical or psychological danger that is present and imminent. It's one of the shortest emotions. It's this rapid fire emotion. And the physiological reaction can sometimes occur before we even realize that we're afraid. So what this means is we may feel the fear in our body before we even know we're afraid. We feel it in the body first. And we respond to fear with either fight, flight, or a freeze response. There's so many things that we're afraid of, like rodents, snakes, the dark, the heights, and the list goes on and on. Brene shares that one thing on everybody's list is this fear of social rejection. We can never forget that we experience social pain and physical pain in the same part of our brains, and the potential exposure of either type of pain drives our fear. Remember that. To our brains, physical or emotional pain looks and feels the same. In Brene's work, she highlights the difference between fear and armor. Armor would be uh, all the ways we self-protect. We all feel afraid, but not all of us armor up. People who aren't armoring up feel the fear and even feel that innate desire and drive to armor up and self-protect, but they stay in the fear and they work through it. They work from a place of an open mind, open heart, and curiosity. We have to remember that fear is a natural response. Armor could even be considered a natural response, but what we need to do is allow fear to stay the natural response, but allow armor to become more of a conscious choice and ask ourselves, am I self-protecting right now in a way that moves me away from courage and my values? Addictions, eating, drinking, drugs, rage, anger, they can all be coming from fear. It's about recognizing that we're all afraid. We just have to get to the point where we realize we can also be brave. And for me, I have a story about choosing to be brave and just how very long it took me to get to that place of choosing to be brave and overcoming the fear. So in 2005, I was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease and I was operated on under that misdiagnosis. And when I woke up, it was supposed to be just an exploratory surgery. So the surgeon said, I'm just going to go in, look around, see if you have Crohn's and take care of it if we need to. So that was the impression that I had when I went into surgery. When I woke up, he said, you were right. You didn't have Crohn's disease. And he held up his hands, gesturing to about a foot in front of me. And he said, I took about a foot of your small intestines. It's no big deal. Everybody can recover from that. And I asked, I remember looking at him and saying, well, why did you take anything if there was no Crohn's? And he said, oh, just to test it, just to have 
to have it tested and look at it. I said, okay. I then spent the next year of my life in and out of hospitals and unable to keep any food in my system. So I was slowly dying. I was just losing weight at a rapid, rapid speed. And I was just wasting away to absolutely nothing. About a year later, I finally found myself at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where they were able to determine, thanks to the pathologist who told the truth on all of his paperwork, that in fact, I was missing four and a half feet of my small intestines. I was missing my appendix and the ileocecal valve and five lymph nodes, all these things that I had no idea were taken. And that was why I couldn't recover. That was why I was struggling to keep food in my system. So being put on the proper medication, I was able to slow my system down enough that I could get nutrients again and get a second chance at life. So I came home from Minnesota and had a long journey of taking care of myself and and figuring out what that looked like for me. And so, of course, of course, any experience like this, any kind of trauma had really brought up a fear of doctors and even more so a fear of surgeons in my life. And so when it came to be 15 years later, And I was at the fertility clinic, and they highly recommended that I have this exploratory laparoscopic surgery where the surgeon would go in and look for endometriosis to remove the suspected endometriosis and also remove any scar tissue that could be in the way from this previous surgery. The first time the surgery was recommended to me, I walked out of the clinic and made it to the parking lot before I started crying. Got in my car and was like, absolutely not. I am not interested in having surgery. There has to be another way. So I spent about two years trying to find every other possible way to get pregnant without doing the surgery. And then eventually my desire to become pregnant became bigger than my fear. And that's when we make real change, right? Is when the scales get tipped in that direction. So I made the decision to have the surgery. I scheduled it. It took all of my courage to be able to do that. And then sure enough, COVID hits and all elective surgeries got canceled. So my surgery was canceled and I was like, okay, here we go. So I was faced with it once again. Do I have enough courage to say yes to this again. So eventually I signed up for surgery again, months and months later, and finally went to have the surgery. And on the day of the surgery, well, the whole week of the surgery, really, I was getting signs that I was on the right path. I was getting a lot of spiritual signs that this was the right move for me. But my fear was huge. My fear was so big. And I was faced with that I was going to have to do this alone, meaning none of my people could be there with me. So on the day of the surgery, I don't even think Ian put the car in park. He just slowed the vehicle down and let me out because he couldn't even come in the building with me. My best friend, who's a nurse, and she tried to come in. She works at that hospital. She tried to come in. They wouldn't even let her on the floor with me. So I was faced with 
this is something I'm going to have to do and I'm going to have to do it completely alone. And so I kept calling, calling on the angels, calling on all of my protection and went into surgery. And by the time I got wheeled into the operating room, I was very nervous. And I remember them giving me the anesthesia. And I remember them saying something like, oh, it's taking her an awful long time here. And I was fighting it. I was fighting it so much. I was counting backwards from 100. I was keeping my eyes wide open. I was like, I'm not falling asleep because that's when things happen, right? And the surgeon, who is my fertility doctor and who I very much trust, came over to me and he looked at me and he held my hand. He put my hand in his and he said, you're going to be okay. I'm going to take care of you. I won't let anything happen to you. You're going to be okay. And in that moment, I looked at him and I said, I trust you. And I fell asleep and that was it. And I truly did trust him. I was able to overcome my fear. I was able to let my courage be bigger than my fear and even let the past trauma of what happened not be what was going to happen in the future. And of course, nothing bad happened during that surgery. Absolutely nothing happened. So just because something bad happens to us once in our life, whether it's a horrible breakup or experiencing the death of a loved one, in the sense, nothing is ever going to happen in the same way again, right? Susan David, she wrote the book, Emotional Agility, and she shared that research on emotional suppression shows that when emotions are pushed aside or ignored, they get stronger. Psychologists call this amplification. So for example, if you were to think about delicious cake and it's in your refrigerator, the more you try to ignore it, the greater its hold is on you. You might think you're in control of unwanted emotions when you ignore them, but in fact, they control you. The internal pain always comes out. It always does. And who pays the price? We do. Our children, our colleagues, our communities. So feel the fear. Don't suppress it. Just like with any other emotion, we can't keep suppressing our emotions. And don't let it stop you from doing the brave and courageous thing that you are being called to do. Harriet Lerner, she is one of my most favorite people to learn from, especially around fear. She said that throughout evolutionary history, anxiety and fear have helped every species to be wary and to survive. Fear can signal us to act or alternatively to resist the impulse to act. It can help us make wise, self-protective choices in and out of relationships where we might otherwise sail mindlessly along, ignoring signs of trouble. Fear is a message. It's sometimes helpful. It's sometimes not. But it's often conveying critical information about our beliefs, our needs, and our relationship to the world around us. We may believe that anxiety and fear don't concern us because we avoid experiencing them. We may keep the scope of our lives so narrow and familiar, opting for sameness and safety, that we may not even know that we're scared of success, we're scared of failure, we're scared of rejection, criticism, conflict, competition, intimacy, or adventure. 
because we are not testing the limits of our competence and our creativity. We avoid anxiety by avoiding risk and change. Our challenge is to be willing to become more anxious by embracing new situations and stepping more fully into our lives. We must use fear to guide us in a positive direction. And we can also learn courage so that our fear doesn't stop us from speaking, acting, and living authentically. And when fear temporarily gets the upper hand, which it will, we need to practice more compassion towards ourselves and others. In Harriet's book, Fear and Other Uninvited Guests, she gives an assignment to one of her clients who's struggling with the fear of rejection to go out into the world and get more comfortable with rejection. He was afraid he had just gotten out of a marriage. He was divorced. And I think it was a couple of years after that. And he was ready to date again, but he was so afraid of being rejected. So she challenged him to go get rejected 75 times. Now, mind you, this case was a little extreme, and she says that not everyone this would be the remedy for, but she does offer a five-step protocol that can help someone overcome that fear of rejection. The first step is, step one, action is powerful. Sometimes you can move through a fear quickly when you're willing to act. When you avoid your fear, your anxieties are apt to worsen. Step two, succeed by failing. If you fear rejection, you may indeed need to experience more times getting snubbed, dating rejections, having your writing or your art being rejected. Step three, risk feeling ridiculous. Don't shy away from taking healthy risks to just avoid looking foolish. Step four, invite the fear in. When you anticipate a guest coming to visit, you are more prepared for whatever happens. And step five, motivation matters. If you are not at least a six or a seven on that motivation scale, you may need to be in more pain about the status quo before you're willing to act. You need to be uncomfortable to be willing to change. And that's what happened for me, right? My desire to become pregnant, my desire to become a mother became the motivation that helped me actually take the action that I needed to take in order to overcome that fear. If we choose to live courageously, we will experience rejection and we will survive to show up for more. Very often after I've done the brave and courageous thing, whether it be a difficult conversation with a loved one, I'll tell myself, well, that didn't kill me. Very often, the fear and the anticipation are far more worse than doing the actual thing that we are afraid of. I know this is so true for me with conversations. Whenever I have a really hard conversation that I know I have to have, the anticipation is always so much worse than the actual conversation. And when I get done with it, I'm like, well, why did I do this? Why did I drag this out for so long? Cheryl Strayed is my hero. I don't know if I have anyone else to say that about, but Cheryl Strayed, she's my hero. And of all the books I've read and all the teachers that I've learned from, she has taught me to be more brave. It was her book, Wild, that first had me hooked and inspired me. Here's a quote from Wild. I knew that if I allowed fear to overtake me, my journey was doomed. 
Fear, to a great extent, is born of a story we tell ourselves. And so I chose to tell myself a different story from the one that women are told. I decided I was safe, I was strong, I was brave, and nothing could vanquish me. She was referring to her journey of hiking the PCT, the Pacific Crest Trail, alone as a woman. And so this really resonates with me because I spend a lot of time in nature alone, hiking, walking, walking the dog. And I have had so many moments in my life where I've said, what would Cheryl do? When I'm faced with a fear, I will think to myself, what would Cheryl do? Right? She chose to tell herself a different story. And that's how she moved through that moment. So I have a story about my experience in nature, which has multiple sides of fear. So this was probably 13, 14 years ago. And I was with my beloved chocolate lab hunter. And we were headed to our morning hike where we love to go hiking every day. And so we had gotten in the car and headed to our favorite hiking spot. I pulled into the the little dirt gravel driveway that everyone parks in. And I noticed there was one car there, only one car, and it was parked differently. So if we all parked vertically, it was parked like horizontally. Like it was a complete different orientation. I thought, you know, I noticed it in the moment, but I didn't think too much of it. I thought it was odd, but I didn't, it didn't really stand out to me as anything, you know, dangerous or anything in that way. So we started walking and it was a beautiful day. It was early May and the spring, I remember thinking how much spring was springing, right? Spring was upon us. Everything was starting to bloom. And it's just a beautiful, magical time to be in the woods when you're reminded after a very long winter. So we're hiking along the trail and all of a sudden I hear someone cat call at me, like make that kind of whistle, cat call sound. And I immediately stop. All the hairs on my arms just stand up on attention. And both Hunter and I stop in the middle of the trail and look around in all directions. And I never saw where the sound was coming from. I never saw the person that made this noise that was whistling at me. Even Hunter didn't, couldn't even decipher where it came from. And so this was a moment of fear. And what I did was I was overriding the fear, being like, okay, no big deal. Keep going, right? Ignore it, which so many of us do in moments when we should be paying attention to our fear. My body was giving me the signal. So we kept along on our hike and I think I was on edge the entire time, but I just kept walking like, well, someone whistling at me isn't enough for me to turn around. That's ridiculous, right? Having all of those kind of thoughts, be brave. So I continue to walk and we make it all the way down to the river And I'm sure I'm positive Hunter probably went swimming because he was always swimming. And then we turned and we were headed back up towards the main road. I would say we were probably a half a mile away from where the cars were parked. I couldn't see the parking lot, but it was kind of like a straight shot at this point. So we're hiking and I hear a branch snap. And I know I instantly I know which direction it's from at this 
time and I look over and I look, I don't see a person, but I just look in the general area and I know there's no trails there because I know this place so well. I know there's no trails there. So clearly there's someone in the woods that's not on a trail. And just in that moment of processing, I hear a gunshot. The gunshot sends fear through my entire body, the cortisol, the adrenaline, I do know, being married to a hunter, I do know that it's hunting season. It's turkey season for us. And even though you're not supposed to hunt there, you know, I know that sometimes people do. So I'm like, okay, it's a hunter, it's turkey season. And my thought is, I don't want anyone shooting at my dog thinking my dog's an animal, right? A turkey or whatever. So I immediately start to jog, not a full out run, but a jog headed towards the car and hunters, you know, running along with me being like, oh, what game are we playing? And within a matter of seconds, I hear another gunshot. And at this point, I'm scared. I am full on afraid. I recognize that the gunshot sounds very different than the first one. And I have no understanding as to why it was a very muffled sound compared to the first one. And I ran all the way as fast as I could to my car, panting, get to the car as quick as I can, get the dog in the car and just drive off. It was all I knew to do was just to get out of there. And I drove home and I calmed myself down as much as I possibly could. And all of the thoughts I had had of calling the police, I was like, somebody was just hunting there. Like, it's no big deal. They're not even going to find him. Like, so I talked myself out of calling the police. I talked myself out of the fear. I tried to be like, you're okay. Everything's okay. And then later that afternoon, a family member came over and told me that there was a person where I go hiking. She knew where I went hiking. And so she said, yeah, you know, this morning there was a person that had been let go from his job yesterday and he was out drinking all night and he killed himself. Where you go hiking, do you know anything about this? And I immediately started crying and I was, I had such regret and such guilt that I didn't call the police because ultimately another person walking their dog found this man and his body. And I could have prevented that trauma from happening. I do not believe I could have stopped any trauma. I don't believe I could have stopped the suicide in any way, but I am sad about not calling the police in that moment. So this is a story about overriding that innate real sense of fear, right? Like I ignored it. I completely ignored it. But then what happens next is I now have this trauma. I now have this new sense of fear and it is stopping me from doing the thing that I love so much. The thing that gives me so much healing, which is being in nature with my dog every day. So for a while, a few weeks, I avoided going there. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't walk the dog, right? And eventually I was like... I need to get over this in the sense of not suppress the feelings, but I knew that I had to take the action. Just like Harriet Lerner shared, that action was what I needed to do in this moment. So I created a plan and I had friends go with me and I would start out for like 10 minutes a day. 
and then go and hike with a friend and then, uh, you know, eventually work my way up to 20 minutes and 30 minutes. And after a few weeks of getting back into that groove and recognizing that I was truly safe, that this was just a one-time incident, I was able to go back into the woods alone. And that's the other part of fear is right. Like that part of the fear is the part where I had to be brave and courageous and take action. Or I could have spent the rest of my life being indoors and never hiking and never being where I truly feel so much healing. And Cheryl Strayed, she's the one who keeps inspiring me on this. What would Cheryl do? Right. She would walk alone in the woods and because she was able to overcome her own fear, right? When it wasn't real. So now I'm much more conscious about actually paying attention to when the fear is real and also knowing when I have to be brave. My favorite quote from her is, bravery is acknowledging your fear and doing it anyway. I used to have a bracelet that I wore every day that said this, bravery is acknowledging your fear and doing it anyway. And so I have a much, much happier story about one of the absolute best nights of my life, and it involves Cheryl Strayed. So I was I was on the board of directors of a nonprofit. It was called The Molly Project, and we used to take photographs of women and then eventually opened it up to anyone who was struggling with a life-altering disease or a terminal illness. This came from my own desire. My dad died when I was five, and I only have so many pictures of me and him. And I never wanted people to go without pictures if they couldn't afford it or if they logistically couldn't come up with it. So with the Molly Project, we would go into people's hospital beds and do little family photo sessions. And it wasn't for that person. It was for all the people that were going to be left behind. So I felt passionately about being a part of this nonprofit. And one of the other women on our board of directors worked at Syracuse University, and she played a really important role in helping set up the speaker series that would all of these famous speakers and authors that would come to Syracuse and speak at Hendricks Chapel. So I kept pitching over and over, like, you have to get Cheryl Strayed. Cheryl Strayed had gotten her master's at Syracuse University. So this was like a no-brainer to me, full circle moment. Wild had come out, and the movie was either in production or had just come out. It was somewhere around that time. So the first answer was no. (laughs) First, we didn't get anywhere, but I just kept pitching and pitching. And eventually, somehow, with some magic, we were able to get Cheryl to say yes and the university to say yes to having her come here. To say I was excited is an understatement. I was just crawling out of my skin with excitement. And so she was going to come speak at Hendricks Chapel, this beautiful chapel on campus. And the Molly Project was given one ticket for this dinner that was going to be following, immediately following Cheryl's speech. And it was given to my dear friend who was the, I think she might have been the president at that time of the board for the Molly Project. And she loved Cheryl as well. But she kept telling me like, if at any point during the night, I just hand you the ticket, I just am going to need you to take it and not say anything and just go and take my place. Right. So we knew this going into it, but 
as Cheryl was speaking, her and I are sitting there in the front row or the second row, something like that. And we are both crying. We're holding hands and we're crying. And Cheryl is just hitting chords in each of us that are totally separate, which is amazing. And that's what her book Wild has done, right? People resonate with different parts of the story based on the own lens that they're viewing the world through. So in that moment, I knew that I was not going to go to dinner, <laughs> like that my friend, she needed to be there, right? Just as much as I needed to be there, she needed to be there. So I did say, however, though, I said, I'm going to walk you over there and I'm just going to scope it out and see what's going on in this little secret dinner and just see, you know, what would Cheryl do? I was in all of the Cheryl energy of what would she do this brave and courageous moment. So on our walk across campus, we're talking about what we think the dinner is going to be like. And so I say, I think there's going to be like 10 tables and there will be, you know, 10 people at each. And Cheryl's just going to like pop in each table for like five minutes, just kind of like round robin kind of experience. That's what I thought, right? So we get closer to the building. The fear of rejection oh, is just starting to really, really become present. Like the, I can see how close I am to this dream of mine to meet my hero. So I walk in and I see one table one beautifully elegant decorated table, just one long table. I mean, maybe 12 seats at this table and a placed card at each person's spot with their name on it. So now I'm like, there's no way, there's absolutely no way that I am going to be able to get a place at this table. But I keep staying there. Something is keeping me there. And so Cheryl was doing like a book signing immediately following her speech. So we had a little bit of time before she was coming. So I just made my way around the room, talked to every person that was there, told them about the Molly Project and what we do in the community. And I mean, to the point I even had stopped at the bar. They had like this little bar cart in there and gotten myself a glass of water. And I'm walking around with a glass of water, just like I totally belong. And every person I meet, I'm telling them that I'm actually haven't been invited to this, but I'm just there on the off chance that somehow someone doesn't show up. Right. So I'm walking around, mingling, meeting everyone. And then finally Cheryl comes in and, oh, just to be that close to your hero, right? So she walks in and I'm now trying to calculate how is this dinner going to work? Is it a plated meal? So I'm assuming that everyone is going to take their seats and then I'm going to be able to tell if there is by chance one person that didn't show up. But that's not what happened. There was this beautiful buffet and, it, and I use the word buffet but it was gorgeous. It was like tapas style, fancy food. And everyone started to line up. So now I have to wait for everyone to be in line to get their food and then sit down before I can recognize if there is a spot left. So I'm standing, I'm hanging back. I am not, this is the line and I've drawn it. I'm not going to get food if I cannot stay. And I'm at the end of the line talking to this man, George, who's been so nice to me the whole evening. 
And he forces me. He says, you're in, you're here, just stay. You are meant to be here. You are meant to be here. He says, nope, I'm not getting my food until you get your food first. So he forces me in line in front of him. I I grab a plate and my fear is so high right now. I am just so anxious being like, what is all going to happen? I had even told the wait staff what was happening. So they're all now rooting for me that I get a seat. And everyone takes a seat and there is one chair left. One chair that is left. And someone didn't show up. I can't remember the circumstances. And I took this chair. I took the seat to have dinner with my hero. (laughs) And we go around the room. Everyone's introducing themselves. I start to hear people's names that I've heard before, but didn't know who they were or what they looked like. I start to recognize that I am at a dinner with some pretty esteemed authors. And there's a few students that are a part of the writing program. And so there's a few students there, but every single person in that room, except me and my friend, are authors, they're writers. And so the first person to go who was sitting next to Cheryl was the author Mary Carr. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait, I know your work. I didn't know what she looked like. So here she was sitting there. Then we continue going around the room. The man sitting next to me is Arthur Flowers. And then we go a few more people. And this man who'd been helping me all night long is the incredible George Saunders. And so he's sitting there, you know, I'm I'm starting to piece things together. And then I'm really like, what am I doing at this table? So Cheryl gets to me and I, I explain who I am and, you know, my role with the Molly Project and what we do and which really speaks to Cheryl in the sense that she knows what it was like to lose a mother to cancer and and the value of having those pictures and what it is we do to help families like that. And I tell Cheryl, I'm not supposed to be here. (laughs) But I also believe totally that I was supposed to be there. I tell her that I have just Cheryl'd my way into this dinner. I kept thinking and I tell her that for the last year of my life, I have asked myself every day, what would Cheryl do? And just by asking myself that, I have become more brave. I've faced my fear in so many different ways. So the dinner continues on and... I just feel so lucky to be a part of the most wonderful conversation about writing and authors and process and just so much beauty. I'm not saying anything. It gets to be like 10 o'clock at night. The staff is getting antsy. We've been there for hours just having this incredible conversation. I have not asked one question because I am feeling a little bit like a fish out of water in there, but also just truly grateful for the experience. So my friend from across the room says, I think Megan has a question, which I did not have any question, but she saw an opportunity for me and she took it. So everyone looks at me. It's as if the whole world stopped and everyone's eyes are on me, including Cheryl's. And I start to speak to Cheryl as if no one else is in the room. And I don't have any questions. At this time in my life, I was not writing at all. I didn't have any questions about process and writing and and things like that. So I just looked at her and 
I asked her what it was like for her to be honoring her mother, to be continuing to have conversations about her mother with people like me, total strangers. And how does that feel to stay connected to her in that way? And Cheryl looks at me and everyone else disappeared. It was just this moment between her and I. And she tells me that her mother was the kind of person that was never in the newspaper. She was in the newspaper one time in her life and it was for her obituary. And by writing this book, she has been able to keep her alive and stay connected to her and keep having conversations with people like me about her mother. And she says, if I could tell my mother one thing, if I could only tell her one thing right now, I would tell her, Laura Dern played you in a movie. And that would be it. Oh, it was such a beautiful moment. And the conversation went on a little bit longer. I can't remember. It was just this beautiful experience of talking to her. And so eventually we wrapped up our dinner. I was the only one to ask for a selfie, but I was not leaving this moment without a selfie. No chance. We walked to our cars and George, my friend George, who is also George Saunders, turns out, walks me to my car and he says, I'm so glad you were here tonight. You changed the conversation. You changed the energy. You really added something to this conversation. And I'm just so glad you were here. You were meant to be here. And that is my story about one of my most favorite nights of my entire life and about getting to meet not just one hero, but then even getting to learn more about George Saunders and his work. And he's truly become an inspiration for me as well. Now I want to talk about the difference between our fear and our intuition, because this can get a little bit murky, right? Just like I shared the story about being in the woods, sometimes our fear is keeping us safe, but sometimes we're just afraid of doing the thing we're being called to do. So as we've already explored, there's many times throughout history that our fear has alerted us to danger, kept us safe and alive. And then there's time when our fear actually stopped us from doing the brave and courageous thing. So let's pretend you are being called to have a really difficult conversation with a loved one, or you're being asked to give a speech in front of a thousand people. Is it a fear that is an opportunity for you to grow? It's something you actually want to do, but you're just afraid of failing, or maybe you're afraid of the social rejection or uncertainty of the outcome. How can we decipher whether to follow our intuition to be brave or to follow our fear, which of course can be tricky because sometimes it saves us from actual death. So here's a simple test from Marie Forleo to decipher between fear and your intuition. So if you're in one of these moments, you slow down. Close your eyes if you can. If you're not driving your car, you close your eyes and you ask yourself, in terms of the opportunity you're thinking of saying yes to, when you imagine yourself saying yes or moving forward with this idea or this person in your body, in that nanosecond that you ask the question, How do I feel about this? Do you feel yourself expand or contract? It's tiny. It's such a tiny, tiny micro movement of feeling within you. You get really quiet and you just ask yourself, is this for me? And if you feel yourself expand, 
that's your yes. Expansion might feel like lightness, joy, excitement, and fun. All of those feelings where you almost perceive your body moving forward in space ever so slightly. If it's a no, contraction, think about it in terms of dread, despair, this heaviness. Something in you is saying no. There's a heavy pit in your stomach. Even if that opportunity, even if that idea or that person that asked you something on paper, it sounds like you should say yes to, but something is pulling you back. That's your no. This is a great way to help you tap into your inner wisdom, the wisdom that's already within you, that's working to guide you on the path for your highest good. And I love this exercise. It's about tuning into how we feel and letting our bodies help us decide which path to take. Because like we've already shared, you're going to feel the fear in your body physically before you understand it mentally. So you'll, you will get the signals from your body and you just have to tune in into whether the fear is real and it's something that should be a no or it's a yes. So sticking with the body, let's talk about the brain. What part of your brain controls fear? The fear response is generated by stimulation of the amygdala, followed by the hypothalamus. And this is why some people with brain damage, it affects their amygdala. They don't always respond appropriately to dangerous scenarios. When the amygdala stimulates the hypothalamus, it initiates the fight or flight response. And the hypothalamus sends a signal to the adrenal glands to produce hormones such as adrenaline and cortisol. As these hormones enter the bloodstream, you might notice some physical changes, such as an increase in your heart rate, breathing rate, blood sugar, perspiration. What we now know about the effects of mindfulness on the brain and in regards to our fear is that consistent mindfulness can shrink the amygdala. I'm serious. Mindfulness can shrink your amygdala, which is part of our brain responsible for fear. It can increase the gray matter and functioning in the prefrontal cortex, which is the area responsible for logic, reasoning, and executive functions. And to go even deeper into this is recognizing how different amounts of meditation times affect the brain. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but meditation times can be super short, super long. They come in all different times. Well, very often it's because of the actual effects that they have on the brain. So three minutes of meditation will affect your circulation, your blood chemistry, and your stability of the blood. The increased blood circulation begins distributing enhanced neuroendocrine secretions throughout the body. And three minutes, just three minutes, will help also charge the electromagnetic field. In 11 minutes of meditation, the pituitary gland gets on board. So the pituitary gland, the glandular system, and the nerves start to learn and change, meaning the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems begin to accommodate the increased energy. So you start to feel it in more systems of the body. In 22 minutes, anxiety-producing thoughts in the subconscious begin to clear. Your three minds, negative, positive, and neutral, start to work together so your mental integration changes. And when I say your negative mind, your negative mind is not meaning like bad thoughts. Your negative mind is the part of your mind that tells you don't walk in front of traffic, don't walk in front of a car. It's the part that keeps you alive. So negative and positive mind and neutral mind are all just as important. 
And at 31 minutes, this is the true gold. So if I can meditate for 31 minutes, this is what I love to get to is this place. It affects your whole mind and your aura. Endocrinological balance is achieved as is balance of the chakras of the ethereal body. This balance persists throughout the day and is reflected by changes in moods and behavior. The three gunas, sattva, rajas, and tamas, or the way you perceive the world through your own personal lens come to balance. In the 31 tattvas, which are the projections of your personality from the mind, come to balance. So lots of balance happening. Your whole mind is affected at 31 minutes. For 62 minutes, science tells us that the brain has a plasticity and the ability to change. So at 62 minutes, you can actually change the gray matter of the brain and new grooves form. You're basically regrowing your brain. And at two and a half hours, you are a master meditator. This changes how you relate to the universe. Your new pattern or subconscious are glued. And my recommendation for people who are just starting with meditation is to start small. Start with three minutes a day and then add time. It's better to meditate three minutes every day than to try and meditate for 60 minutes once a week. The effects of meditation are cumulative. So the more frequently you meditate, the more benefits you'll receive. And like I'm saying on every single podcast, meditate. Just start meditating. You don't have to be good at it. And the last topic I want to cover today is the relationship between love and fear. Very often when I'm feeling afraid of something or of doing something, I will stop and ask myself if I'm choosing fear or am I choosing love? Sometimes it's simple and I can clearly see when I'm choosing fear over love. And sometimes I have to dig a little deeper. How I do this is usually through journaling. So journaling can usually help me decipher between the two. A quote from the book Bittersweet by Susan Cain is, love is the antidote to fear. Fear causes you to shrink and withhold and love opens you up. So for me, I'm going to keep choosing love. You can think of it in terms of the contraction and the expansion. And Marianne Williamson, in her book, A Return to Love, Reflections on Principles of A Course in Miracles, shared that Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Well, actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not in just some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. That gives me chills every time I read it. We can be afraid of our light just as easily as we are afraid of our dark. And this week's tool to help you with fear comes from Elizabeth Gilbert. We're going to write a letter from our fear. Step one, write your name. For example, dear Meg, this is your fear and I want you to know. Allow your fear to write a letter to you. Ask your fear, what is it you're actually terrified about in the situation? 
Make an effort to listen with respect. We often think we know what we're afraid of, but when your fear is actually given a chance to speak, you can be surprised at what the real issues are. Fear and anxiety can feel like they have infinite depths, like they are afraid of everything, but usually they're just afraid of two or three very specific things once you look closely. And sometimes those two or three things are pretty reasonable. Usually the letter that my fear writes to me is quite short and very precise. And once I see those two or three issues are what I'm actually afraid of, well, now we can talk about it like adults, like friends. Ask your fear what it wants, what it doesn't want, and why it's so desperately holding you back from your creativity and your courage, and what it might be asking you to attempt. Let your fear speak. Let it write you a letter. And then step two is read the letter with an open-minded and open-hearted affection. And step three is to write a letter back to your fear with love and kindness, thanking it for its thoughts and contributions, but gently explaining what we're going to do now that all the information has been reported, respectfully explaining your new plan. Your fear should always be allowed to have a voice and a seat in the vehicle of your life, but don't let your fear drive the car. And if you want to try this exercise, you can check out the show notes for a detailed description on how to do it. And I'll leave you with a poem from Pima Chodron. And oh, it's a beautiful poem. She says, once there was a young warrior. Her teacher told her that she had to do battle with fear. She didn't want to do that. It seemed too aggressive. It was scary. It seemed unfriendly. But the teacher said she had to do it and gave her the instructions for the battle. The day arrived. The student warrior stood on one side and fear stood on the other. The warrior was feeling very small and fear was looking big and wrathful. They both had their weapons. And the young warrior roused herself and went towards fear, prostrated three times, and asked, May I have permission to go into battle with you? Fear said, Thank you for showing me so much respect that you ask permission. Then the young warrior said, How can I defeat you? Fear replied, My weapons are that I talk fast and I get very close to your face. Then you get completely unnerved and you do whatever I say. If you don't do what I tell you, I have no power. You can listen to me and you can have respect for me. You can even be convinced by me. But if you don't do what I say, I have no power. In that way, the student warrior learned how to defeat fear. Pema Chodron, when things fall apart, heart advice for difficult times. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're ready to dive deeper into your own emotional expedition, I invite you to join me in an intimate eight-week virtual book study of Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. And in case you're not quite ready to join the study, I wanted to share a free offering that I often suggest to people as a little bit of a compass to get them started on their emotional journey, the meditation to alleviate stress. You can find the meditation and the book study linked below. I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for listening. And if you loved this episode, will you please share it with a friend or two? Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you're sure to never miss a single episode.
This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.